what if we're winning at things that ultimately don't matter and we're ignoring the things that matter ultimately? What if by focusing exclusively on the material, the tangible, physical, and present, we ignore spiritual matters entirely? What if by ignoring the things that are eternal, the war that is eternal, and focusing only on the war that is, spirit, that is physical, that is present, that is tangible, we're winning where it doesn't matter and we're losing where it matters forever? Ephesians chapter 6 equips us for precisely this spiritual battle that I'm describing. This book has been incredible. Has anybody here been blessed by the book of Ephesians verse by verse? <laughs> Praise God. This book is amazing. It's an amazing letter to the church at Ephesus. And the closing words, the final teaching, is one to ready ourselves for spiritual battle. We're going to begin with a verse it requires some explanation. We're going to begin with a verse that starts with the word slave. Now, it's a popular critique and an unfair one to say the Bible isn't worth reading because the Bible condones slavery. And then immediately, Americans will impose our view of chattel slavery over that word slavery. When slavery in the context of first century Ephesus and slavery in the context of the American slave, American slavery before the Civil War, or the European slave trade, the African slave trade are radically different institutions. Chattel slavery is on the basis of ethnicity. It is brutal. It is an injustice. It is uncompensated. It is the form of slavery that was imposed upon the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel under Egypt. That's why the second book of the Bible is called Exodus, as in an exodus from slavery in Egypt. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, and this particular portion of the Bible is going to address people who are under a form of indentured servitude because slaves in ancient Ephesus were not, were not enslaved against their will. They were in, entered into this form of slavery voluntarily. They were compensated. They were paid for their work. There was an expiration date to the arrangement, usually around seven years. It had nothing whatsoever at all to do with ethnicity, and it was far more humane than chattel slavery as we understand it in American history or European history. So please set the record straight. When somebody tries to pose this threat to the, the credibility of the Bible by saying that it is used as a proof text, a rationale for chattel slavery, please inform, please speak up, especially if you are a skeptic. Now, with that context in mind, I propose to you that these opening verses actually do have some beautiful teachings that may even be pretty convicting for us. Because the modern application of this text it was written originally to slaves and slave masters as perhaps most directly analogous to the modern context of employer and employee. So as we look at the text, would you consider, when you see the word slave or bondservant, depending on your translation, employee, and listen to what scripture says to employees. And if you are the boss where you work, would you consider where it says master? Because that is perhaps the most contextually analogous Conclusion we can draw. This was speaking to an employer and employee, and it speaks to employers and employees today. You see, when you remove the unfair cultural stigma, there's actually a pretty important teaching here. Would you look at verse five of chapter, uh, of chapter six of Ephesians with me? 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Can you imagine the shiver that went up the spine of the harsh slave master upon reading these words? Because slave owners were accustomed to a certain degree of privilege when dealing with the Roman government regarding their slaves. But God does not acknowledge that disparity. God shows no partiality. He speaks to those who are in slavery directly. By the way, can you Address that for just a moment in your heart, that the Bible would address people who were in slavery. Moreover, they were literate because they were written to. Moreover, they are addressed because they matter to God. They have teachings directly from Scripture right there in their current station in life. And then he speaks to slave masters. And the words are pretty chilling for the slave master who was harsh with his slaves, who spoke to his slaves in a way that was threatening. You could see yet another Proof that the Bible does not condone chattel slavery as we understand it because this word does not even abide a threatening tone with a slave master to a slave. He says that there is no partiality with God. God does not appreciate or recognize the authority of the slave master who is harsh with his slaves. Now, the, the verses speak to something that we could draw conclusions on in our own daily work lives because it speaks about conducting one's work with a sincere heart as though you were working for Christ, not by way of eye service. You see that in verse six, what is eye service? That's when the boss shows up and you act really busy and you have your stuff together. And then the boss leaves and you pull up that tab back to Facebook. That's eye service. You're pretending, you're pretending. You're putting on a show for your boss. You're trying to act productive, look like you do a good job. Why don't you actually do a good job? By the way, your boss can tell. <laughs> he can tell when you're being fake. She can tell when you're being fake. More importantly, what this text is saying is that God can tell. Having a terrible boss doesn't give you license to just suddenly lack integrity. Moreover, would you consider just for a moment, maybe, maybe you don't have a terrible boss, maybe you're a terrible employee. <laughs> consider it. Don't be fake with your boss. Don't just give eye service. Work as though you're working for the Lord. What's beautiful about that is that then you can find a sense of joy no matter what your occupation. No matter what your vocation, if you work as though God were your boss, doing everything you do for the glory of God, you can find joy in it. There's beauty in that. It's redeeming, isn't it? Make copies to the glory of God. And when you make copies to the glory of God, they are the best copies ever made. All right, now it's not a promise, it's not a guarantee, it's not even really the point of the passage. I'm just gonna say that when you do work as though God's your boss and you do what you do to the glory of God, you tend to get promoted. It's a beautiful teaching and it's an important one. Let it convict you if it convicts you. All right, and let it affirm if it affirms. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but of servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he's a slave or free. This passage was actually used in anti-slavery movements. You'll notice that he likewise brings to bear the law of heaven upon this earthly institution. 
He, in verse nine, reminds masters, stop their threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Crosses the threshold from a heavenly authority to earthly authorities and shows how heavenly authorities supersede man-made institutions of authority. That God, who's in heaven, has all the authority of heaven and all the authority of earth. So he is the boss's 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 boss. His law is what matters eternally. Earthly institutions last only as long as the sun. So which one matters more? Who is actually in charge? Who is actually the master here? It is God. This speaks to the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once again, evoking the authority of heavenly law and bringing it to bear right here on earth. God, would you make earth a little bit more like heaven? Would you take some of the perfection of heaven and would you bring it down to broken earth because your authority, your kingdom matters more than anything else in this life, in this world. This world is passing away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So God, would you have your perfect heavenly will done right here on earth. I believe this line of thought segues perfectly into the text that follows, wherein Paul's going to discuss ways in which the physical realm may be affected by the spiritual. Especially as Americans, we have this tendency to connotate the word spiritual with non-physical, as though anything that is spiritual is inherently not physical. That's not actually the etymological history of the word. Not really what the word spiritual means. It doesn't mean not physical. Something that is spiritual may not necessarily be observed with the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the sense of touch. That doesn't mean that it is less real. Something that is intangible may not necessarily be spiritual, and something that is spiritual may not necessarily be relegated exclusively to the realm of the non-physical. I'll give you some examples biblically wherein we've seen the spiritual realm speak directly into the physical realm. We saw this in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, we studied the Nephilim. We see there the spiritual realm interfering directly with the physical realm. And then when we studied Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, we saw a reversal of, re reversal of that wherein the physical realm would impose its will upon the spiritual realm as angels were present in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in Genesis 32, we see Jacob wrestle with God and have his name changed to Israel. Then we see Joshua chapter five, Joshua speak to the commander of God's angel army. And he asked a fascinating question. Whose side are you on, Israel's or her enemies? And the commander of God's angel army says, neither, I'm on God's side. We've seen multiple instances biblically in which the spiritual realm would speak directly into and manifest within the physical world. The, perhaps the most prominent example is Jesus. That's why the virgin birth is important because the spirit of God, Jesus the son, the immortal word who existed before the foundations of the earth is now born miraculously into the world. That is an example of the spiritual entering directly into the physical world. My skeptical friend, if you're still struggling to cross this threshold, it's a little bit much for you to grasp, but you consider this, the chair you're sitting in and where it came from ultimately. The atoms that comprise your chair, where do they come from ultimately? Where did any matter come from ultimately? Physical universes don't generate themselves. You know this. You have always known this. Your heart of hearts. You just don't want to address the question if you're brutally honest because you prefer darkness to light. You want to suppress that truth so that you can rationalize sin that you know God's not okay with. 
And so you're perfectly comfortable believing fatuous ideas like your chair and its molecules that comprise it could self-generate. Universes don't just suddenly universe. You know this. There's absolute nothingness and then there's everything. Like you know, you know that's not true. The only way the physical realm could exist is if it were initiated by the timeless spiritual. You know this. You know this. The physical universe was created ex nihilo, out of nothingness, and ex nihilo, nihilo feet. Out of nothingness, nothing comes. Yet here we are. Even if you do grant the utterly impossible that a physical universe could generate itself ex nihilo, even if you grant the impossible, self-generating universes that explode into existence out of nothingness don't do so in perfect order like what we observe here. From an explosion to, you know, Starbucks and credit card. <laughs> yeah, here we are. But let's even grant that further impossibility, further compound, further compound the improbability of it all. Grant the impossible that a universe would self-generate. Grant the further impossibility that a self-generating universe would manifest itself in an orderly way. Moreover, self-generating universes that exist in an orderly way don't also have a pervading, overlaying, moral, transcendent law. But you know that morality exists, and you know to the marrow of your bones it is authoritative, and there's a slight fear in your heart that you will answer to that authority one day. Universes don't self-generate. They don't, certainly don't self-generate into an orderly way. And if universes do self-generate, there's no such thing as morality, and there's nothing at all wrong with murder. But you know in the marrow of your bones murder is wrong. That's why you point your finger at your TV, and you rant and you rave against injustice. My skeptical friend, when you call something evil, you're proving your belief in God. Because to call something evil is to presuppose good. To presuppose an authoritative moral law that distinguishes between good and evil is, according to Ravi Zacharias, to presuppose a moral law giver. You know in the marrow of your bones that this spiritual warfare stuff is real. You've seen perfectly sane, intelligent people do inexplicably horrific things as though influenced by evil, because they were. They were. Think on that for a minute. That means that you're not neutral. You cannot trust your faculties. You do not come out of the womb objective. We're all born with a sin nature, and you're influenced by exactly this pervasive, cosmic, present, spiritual darkness. I don't think anybody in this room would argue with me that there is a present darkness at work in our world. You've encountered it. That's partly why you're here, isn't it? Because you've seen it, you've been scarred by it. And you know that it exists, you came here for hope. I hope that's why you're here, because guess what? You found it, the hope is in Jesus. So as we talk about spiritual things, a spiritual war, I don't want you to be creeped out, I want you to be fired up. I know that it's a difficult threshold to cross, but I also want you to know that that obfuscation is the enemy's work in and of itself. I'll give you 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It reads, in their case, speaking about you, my skeptical friend is just having a hard time crossing this threshold to believe that spiritual matters are real or they have any, any salience whatsoever in a physical realm. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil's best tactic is to turn out the lights. He is all too happy to go uncredited for his work. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 10.4. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. This is the cooperative efforts of teams of spiritual forces that would deceive, that would tempt, that would lure, that would trap, that would harm. We're not neutral. And sticking your head in the sand to a spiritual war doesn't exempt you from it. This text is going to tell all of us as Christians to stand up. Okay, spiritual warfare is not extra credit work for hippie weird Christians. It is something we face on a daily basis. Something that Paul, in his final word of exhortation to the Ephesian church, is to stand up, to stand firm. Look specifically how in verse 10 with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Are you picking up a theme here? Stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, praying for all the saints." And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The book of Ephesians. Isn't that a beautiful ending? Love incorruptible. Shall we start with dessert? What is love incorruptible precisely? To love Jesus, not for what you can get from him, but just because you love Jesus. To love God and to love his gospel, not for its benefits, but just because of who he is. To love God without any selfish motive, but just simply to love God as love that is incorruptible. Did you see Tychicus? You remember this name? We've seen him before. What a beautiful reputation. He is, he is forever named in the world's best-selling book of all time. And he's a faithful servant, delivering the words of Paul and then encouraging encouraging the churches, encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a beautiful legacy. He's not the author of these texts. He is the deliverer of these texts. I think that's an admirable, beautiful, faithful ministry. What is your gift of service? What will your spiritual legacy be? It is, if it is that of the spiritual courier, then you have an esteemed company in Tychicus. Any work that you do in the Lord, anything you do for the kingdom of God lasts forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. We may carry out futile tasks in our daily lives, but the things we do for the kingdom of God last forever. Just ask Tychicus. 
Let's go back through this text because verses 10 through 13 speak more to this engagement with the spiritual realm. And then verse 14 is going to begin cataloging the different elements of the armor of God. We'll talk about the pieces of the armor of God. Look at verse 10. There's crucial words that I want you to, I want you to grasp and press to your heart firmly. Finally, be strong, look at this, in the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. Which means that this whole act of spiritual war is not one that you wage by your own fortitude, your own constitution, your own formidable intellect, powers of persuasion and charisma. Rather, all of this is done in the might of God. You stand strong in the Lord, in his might, not your own. You don't scare demons. You understand that? The book of Acts, people literally get their pants beaten off by demons. Demons aren't scared of you. It makes for cool, scary movies. It's not true. Demons are not the least bit frightened of you, but they are terrified of Jesus. So stand firm in his might, in his strength. As a result, who gets all the glory for the victory that you have in spiritual war? All the glory goes to God. 100% of it goes to God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Can, can, I, can I be a little bit of a, a grammatical nerd for a minute? Is that okay? All right, in the original Hebrew, the original Greek, every time you see Satan, it's preceded by the definite article, the Satan. We've kind of turned Satan into a name. But grammatically speaking, that's not proper. It's actually a title. The Satan. The defiler. The deceiver. The opposer. We have this name Lucifer that actually is not in Hebrew or Greek. It was provided by a Catholic Bible translator named Jerome in interpreting Isaiah 14 about the fallen king of Babylon. But the word Lucifer, the name Lucifer, doesn't actually appear in the ancient original text of the Bible. It's just kind of colloquially become associated with the devil, with the Satan, if you will. He lacks the ability to create. The creative faculty lies exclusively with God. Satan has not and cannot create anything. He has not created anything and he cannot create anything. He will never create a thing. He utterly lacks originality. He has zero creativity. All that he can do is create and distort and sharpen and fashion into weapons those things which God created to be good. He is the opposer, and he attacks and he assails. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. When you see something on the news that, that strikes your heart with despair, that is the present darkness that Paul's describing. C.S. Lewis has a powerful book on this, this very topic with this exact title, This Present Darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Let's look at the first piece of the armor of God. The belt of truth. The belt of truth. Did you know that there will be no updates and there are zero updates planned for the Bible? Which means, Christian, which means you can stand by the unchanging word of truth and not be embarrassed of what you've said 10 years from now or 50 years from now. The only people who are embarrassed of the Bible today are the people who haven't been faithful to it all the while. You, you can make statements straight from the word of God and never be embarrassed of them a hundred years from now because there are zero updates planned for the Bible. In fact, 
opposite is true. In fact, there is at the end of the Bible pronounced curses upon anybody who takes words away from the Bible or adds words to it, which means that you can buckle on the belt of truth. Here it is, the authoritative source of truth in the universe. Buckle up with the belt of truth and consider the alternative. If you don't have a canonized and complete authoritative source of truth, then truth is anything. And anything goes. And truth is in flux. And truth is a fad that comes and goes and evolves. And truth changes over time. And truth is rel relative, qua man. It's exhausting. Would you take a minute and just like lay back into the recliner that is the truth of the word of God? Like it's not changing. There are no updates planned. You can observe this. It is exhausting now. I mean, like today there are things that are, are, are forcibly commonplace that were unthinkable 10 years ago, which means whatever is unthinkable now will likely become commonplace 10 years from now. This is what it means to be on the slippery slope of truth. All right, just watch. As an example, as an example of this concept at work, just watch Hillary Clinton, who embodies new wave feminism, surrounded by other candidates. She herself was the nominee previously. She's so progressive, she made her instructor, Saul Alinsky, author of the book Rules for Radicals, nervous because she was so progressive. But now, she's been left in the dust by her fellow candidate hopefuls. Why? Because things that she once championed are now unthinkable. She's not championing yet the things that she can't think of because she's been left in the dust by a sense of truth that is forever in flux. This is just one example it's an exhausting thought that truth would be forever changing and always in flux, never permanent. You must be forced to champion things that you never thought of, and you must contradict things that you once championed. It's amazing to me how many people have, are currently championing the precise opposite of the stance they once took, and they're not being held accountable to it. Why? Because they don't have the belt of truth. You don't have the belt of truth, your pants fall down. <laughs> belt of truth... Followed by, in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. This is important. Please don't mistake the breastplate of righteousness for your own righteousness. Okay? Don't parade around your own breastplate of righteousness. Okay? Jesse, you should see my righteousness. It is downright Baroque. Corinthian. I am so righteous. And you stick your chest out like, your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Okay, this is not your righteousness. This is the righteousness of Jesus. This is the gospel to be imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. To stand in judgment before God and viewed with Jesus' righteousness and not your own. That's the whole point. You're not righteous enough on your own. I'm not righteous, righteous enough on my own. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. That's Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. But instead, instead of paying the consequences, instead of getting what we deserve for our sin, which is hell, we can be imputed with the righteousness of Jesus and go to heaven. It's the gospel. So the breastplate of righteousness, do not mistake it for your own self-righteousness. Do not take pride in your own self-righteousness, but have gratitude for the righteousness of Jesus which is imputed upon you as a saved one, a Christian, son or daughter of God by the power of the gospel. 
The breastplate of righteousness is not something for you to take credit for, something for you to give glory to God for. The next element is the shoes, your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is the one aspect of the armor of God that makes you mobile. It is because of the gospel of peace affixed to our feet, makes us ready that we go on mission trips, that we go to Vietnam, that we go to Thailand, that we go to Dubai, that we go to other nations to share the gospel. Moreover, the text says the gospel of what? The gospel of peace, yes? Which means that wherever you go and you bring the gospel, the people who are there who hear it and believe have peace at last. They didn't have peace before. How do I know that? Because there's no peace outside of Jesus. There's no other prince of peace but Jesus. There's no other spirit that can save but the Holy Spirit of God. There's nothing else that can save souls except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they don't have peace. Would you bring the gospel of peace to them? Bring the gospel of peace to the nations. Bring it across the Pacific. Bring it across your street. Bring it across the cubicle and bring the gospel of peace. Our next series is gonna be Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's called Shadows in the Sand. It's gonna foreshadow Jesus, show how the Old Testament law all pointed forward to Jesus. And then after that, we're gonna study the book of Romans next year. When we study Romans, we're gonna do Romans chapter 10. We get to Romans chapter 10, I'm gonna get loud, er. <laughs> because Romans chapter 10 teaches about those who bring the good news and how beautiful their feet are, bring the gospel of peace, bring it across the cubicle, bring it across the Pacific, and bring the peace of the gospel with you wherever you go. This is the aspect of the armor of God that makes us move in answer to the Great Commission's go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. May your feet be ready to move the gospel of peace. This is the armor of God. What is the next element of the armor of God? The shield of faith. The shield of faith. The second half of this verse could be downright scary. Okay, Pastor Jesse, I like this shield of faith. I would like one, please. Okay, you can have one, but just make sure you read the second half of, half of the verse. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Okay, that could be disturbing. There is a real live spiritual force of evil at work in our universe that is apparently launching flaming darts at you. If you're brand new to Christianity, that could be shocking. You know, the number one reason that people give for leaving their Christian faith behind is they face trial or difficulty or affliction, and they were somehow under the impression that giving their lives to Jesus would absolve them of facing difficulty and exempt them from any trial. You didn't learn that at Highlands Community Church. Because at Highlands Community Church, we exercise basic reading comprehension, yes? Because <laughs> it says that the devil is real and he is throwing flaming darts at you. Now, some of you are not shocked by this at all. <laughs> like, Pastor Jesse, I know the devil is throwing flaming darts. I've got one in my back still smoldering. See, that was a text from my mother-in-law before I got out of the car. <laughs> I know that verse is true. We're in proof of it right here. How many of you were, how many of you had the enemy throw a dart your way before you came to worship today? Yeah. You know this verse is true. The enemy assaults, he assails, he attacks. But the armor of God will call you to take up the shield of faith. What is faith? According to Hebrews 11, 1, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. That means 
When the enemy launches the fiery dart of cancer at your family, we just prayed with a woman just now. When the enemy launches a fiery dart of cancer at your family, you take up the shield of faith in God's sovereignty, knowing that he holds you, he holds your family. When the enemy launches the fiery arrow of political unrest at your heart, you take up the shield of faith in God's redemptive plan, knowing that he wins in the end. When the enemy launches the fiery arrow of money trouble at your heart, you take up the shield of faith in God's provision, knowing that his resources never run dry. And when the enemy launches the fiery dart of marital trouble at your relationship, you take up the shield of faith in God's provision and God's design, knowing that his plan for marriage is good and his spirit is able to redeem any heart. Take up the shield of faith, Christian. Sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. I know that God is good, even if I don't see him right now. I know that God is good. Stand up, take up the shield of faith, Christian. What is next? In the armor of God. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. The most important aspect of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation. Have you ever seen a Christian who has their helmet of salvation, but they may have just forgotten their shield of faith? Or they may have forgotten the sword of the spirit, right, for a moment there? Like they, they, they didn't move. They, didn't, like they, they were at the checkout QFC and they didn't want to bring up the gospel. They did not bring their shoes ready with the gospel of peace. Like I just want my coupons. I want to get out of here. I don't want to share the gospel with you. But at least you've got your helmet of salvation. This is, how you, this is how I think of some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe I have doctrinal disagreements with. Sometimes they just forgot the sword of the spirit. That's all. But my question to you is why would you, why would you want to go into spiritual battle naked? Like why would you go into spiritual battle wielding only the helmet of salvation. Only the helmet of salvation, never the belt of truth. Like you'll go into a spiritual discussion of sorts that can be heated and you'll, you'll leave out the, the whole, you know, truth. That's not allowed here. The truth isn't allowed in this discussion. What is this discussion gonna result in? I get it. Some people will not hear a single word from the Bible. But that presses to me all the more urgency that needs to be shared. The helmet of salvation means at least you're saved, brother. Praise God for that. Okay, you could take the arrows because you forgot your shield of faith. Sometimes your pants fall down because you don't have the belt of truth, but at least you have the helmet of salvation. At least you're saved. At least you're saved. At my house, we like to attack Third Street with skateboards and big wheels. All right, not me. Asa has the big wheel and bicycles, some of which have training wheels and shouldn't, and some don't have training wheels and probably should. <laughs> and when somebody gets the idea, skateboarding, we all, myself included, just jump up and run to the garage, and we barrel in the inside door to the garage, and to the right is this shelf that has, that has helmets on it, has knee pads and elbow pads, we never use those. <laughs> it has gloves, we never use those has a mouth guard. We have never used those. But what's the one thing that my bride gets up and runs and clamors out the door? What's the one thing she tells the boys and maybe me? Don't forget your helmet. And we make helmets that try to make it as cool as possible to not have your skull cracked. Like that, that's not motivation enough. Like we got to decorate it and have like, I'm not even kidding right now, a light up mohawk on the middle of it. 
just to make it cooler so he'll put it on. The helmet of salvation is the most important aspect of the whole armor of God because at least you're saved. By the way, here at Highlands Community Church today, we are giving away the helmet of salvation for free. It's always free. We have limitless supplies. Get yours today. Because if we talk about spiritual warfare, you may feel vulnerable to that. You may think like, okay, apparently Christians need to take up like a shield of faith. They need to have like a belt of truth on. They, they need to have breastplate of righteousness. They, they, need, they need shoes, the gospel of peace, and they need like the sword of the spirit, and they need the helmet. I, I don't have any of that stuff. Does that mean that I'm vulnerable to like demonic spiritual attack? Yes, yes. I can make no promises to you, my friend, if you're not covered with the helmet of salvation. But today, give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Follow that drawing of the Holy Spirit of God in your heart. And in Jesus' name, may there be more Christians to walk out of this room than there were who walked in it. The helmet of salvation, free, 24-7 at Highlands Community Church. What's the next and final element? Sword of the Spirit. I'm gonna give you guys this thing that I've done in the past, and you can take this and feel free to imitate it, and you don't have to give me any credit for it, okay? I have put out word on social media in the past to my skeptical friends saying, if you would send me a screenshot of you listening to the Gospel of John on audio, I'll reply with a Starbucks gift card. I've put this offer out a few times over the years, and it's beautiful the way that it gets response. People can use like the version Bible app or, or other versions of the Bible that have audio. You can have like this, this nice British man read the Bible to you. And I invite my skeptical friends to listen to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written to convince Gentiles that Jesus is God. And guess what? It still does that. And to a man, to a woman, all my skeptical friends reply, don't worry about the Starbucks gift card. I send it anyway. But they all thank me for the invitation and describe the experience because I've never really listened to the Bible before. There's this one woman named Amanda who sent me a reply. She showed me Gospel of John, chapter one, paused 12 seconds in. She said, I had to pause it shortly after I started because it felt like it was cutting me to my soul. It was, <laughs> it was. Amanda didn't yet know Hebrews 4.12. It says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, dividing joints from marrow and soul from spirit. She didn't know Ephesians 6, that this is the sword of the spirit that will cut you to your core, cut you straight to the heart. She listened to the gospel of John with her headphones on and with tears in her eyes, she gave her life to Jesus. And then she took the headphones off and she placed them on her son. And with tears in his eyes, he gave his life to Jesus. And the two of them together are baptized serving members of a church today. Praise God for his word. It's the sword of the spirit. It's sharp. It'll cut you to the core. The sword of the spirit. See to it that you wield it in context, yes? Remember in Matthew 4 when the devil tried to tempt Jesus? We often overlook this. How did he tempt Jesus? He actually used scripture. He quoted scripture to tempt Jesus. Look at, consider the audacity, consider the gall of Satan to try to use the word to tempt the word, Jesus, 
the Word incarnate. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. His light shines in the darkness. The life was the light of men. The darkness has not overcome him. He is the Word of God incarnate, and the devil showed tremendous audacity trying to tempt the Word of God with the Word of God. So the devil used the word of God out of context. What does this mean? It means that it's literally satanic to use the Bible out of context. And how did Jesus respond to these isogeted passages? With the word in context. Wield the sword of the spirit and wield it in context. Grab a Bible reading plan and join in with us, especially as we start Numbers and Deuteronomy together. And then in the coming new year, consider reading the whole Bible through in a one-year plan. Bless your soul and change your life forevermore. Wield the sword of the spirit, Christian. This is the one aspect of the armor of God that is offensive in nature, and it is offensive, isn't it? Let it offend. You understand? Let the sword cut. Let it offend if it's offensive. Don't apologize for it. Don't try to mitigate it. God doesn't need you to be his PR agent. You're just called to wield the sword of the spirit. And then watch those who are offended take home these thoughts and let the Spirit work on their souls and they come and give their lives to Jesus. Wield the sword of the Spirit. Now as we close, I want, you to, I want to point out a couple of things about Paul's prayer at the end. He, he next encourages the Ephesian church to lift up their brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere, the other saints. It's pretty amazing, right? To encourage his brother, brothers and sisters in Christ who are afflicted. This is, this is ever relevant on my heart, having just come home from having ministered to a bunch of ministers who all share the gospel against the wishes of their government. I mean, I know that Christianity is not all that popular in Seattle. I know that we're largely outnumbered, but Christianity is alive and well in Seattle, and it's legal, thank you, God. If you've never taken the moment to thank God for Christianity being legal, would you just do so? There's so many things that we take for granted just having Christianity acknowledged by our government. And so the Ephesian church was to pray for other saints and then, then Paul asks them to pray for him. After asking them to pray for other saints, he asks them to pray for him. Moreover, what does he ask them to pray for him? It's not release from prison, it's for boldness. It's amazing to me. He didn't even ask for release from his chains. He asked for boldness while he wore them that he would proclaim the gospel boldly as he ought to. I can't study that. I can't study that and then share the gospel sheepishly. This is not a drill, not an intellectual exercise. I'm about to wield the sword of the spirit on your soul and on your heart, man. Christian, if you've been asleep, would you stand up already and stand firm in the strength of God's might, wielding the whole armor of God? The belt of truth soundly in place, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, wielding the sword of the spirit to the glory of God. Wake up to spiritual warfare. Join God in spiritual warfare. I know that it's God's will that you wage spiritual war because God is about the business of spiritual warfare himself. And he wins, thank God. He wins Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan is forever cast into a lake of burning sulfur. The same lake of sulfur the Antichrist and his false prophet were cast into in Revelation 19. He wins in the end. So join the winning team. We have a better quarterback than Russell Wilson, so suit up!
Take on the full armor of God and join God in spiritual warfare, Christian. Pray spiritual warfare prayers, making supplication for all the saints, proclaiming the gospel boldly despite your chains. And if you, if you here in the armament of Ephesians 6 feel quite vulnerable to spiritual attack, you don't fear. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Take up the helmet of salvation and be protected from every last one of the spirits that would assail you in a world of spiritual warfare amidst this present darkness. If the Spirit of God is drawing upon your heart, I want to invite you to pray the sword of the Spirit to God as the sword of the same Spirit that inspired it speaks to you now. Would you give your life to Jesus? Take up the helmet of salvation and take your place in the ranks of the army of God because we need you. People are dying and going to hell every day and we need more Christians to suit up, take on the armor of God and join us in this as we make disciples and bring revival to Seattle, amen? Would you take up the helmet of salvation right now, my skeptical friend, as God draws upon your heart, be saved today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow to give your life to Christ right now. God, I believe, John 3, 16, that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, Romans 3, 23, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, Romans 6, 23, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, in John 14, 6, when you yourself said that you are the way and the truth and the life. We're just saying it, God. I believe there's no way I can come to the Father except through you, Jesus. And so filled with the Holy Spirit of God, in accordance with Romans 10, 9, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, take up the helmet of salvation. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand up and worship with us, some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior.